0: For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Well, we have a nice, easy, non-controversial section of Scripture to go over today. Oh, how I wish that were the case. We have yet another really challenging section. If there is anything that... I guess, has surprised me a bit about 1st and 2nd Samuel. So as I've mentioned before in this series, this is my first time teaching through it. It is how many texts there are that really leave us shocked and stunned and reeling as, as Christians as quite, you know, quite how to take this in. I think maybe that's part of the point, is that even in so far as we do, we realize that we're not God. And, uh, and his ways are not our ways, and that that takes on a a manifold meaning. Well, as we left off two weeks ago in 2 Samuel, we finished chapter 19, and we came to a kind of uh, resolution, if you will. The saga with Absalom has come to its tragic ending. Joab rebukes David for being a little too interested in his son and not enough interested in his country. Uh, David returns. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I just got that. No comment. (laughs) Uh, David, of course of course, left Jerusalem and and left, crossed the Jordan going out, and now he returns, repaying with kindness those who showed him kindness on his way out due to Absalom. And then as you see in chapter 19, verse 16 and following, David pardons his enemies. And we talked about how very much Christ-like this is, and the forgiveness that David grants and the mercies that David grants to those who are kind to him. It's just very beautiful, very christ like again the, the messianic figure of David showing through in these texts there 's no doubt about it, and we see again what a large figure David is in terms of Old Testament figures, Old Testament characters. Then we get to verse or excuse me chapter twenty, verse one, and here you know really starts a not another chapter in the sense of a biblical chapter, that's obvious, but in the sense of a uh, a yet another series of events. We turn a corner and go into another series of events that really then lead us into the climax, well, I don't know if it's a climax, but the ending might be a better way of saying it, the ending of uh, David's, David's story. So chapter 20 verse 1, just when just when all seems to be right, just when the kingdom is finally once again united under David and it looks like they're going to ride off into the sunset, not so. Now, there happened to be there a worthless man whose name was Sheba, the son of Bichri, a Benjaminite. And we're reminded, of of course, by this subtly that Saul's lineage is that of a Benjaminite and so The apple doesn't fall too far from the tree. And he blew the trumpet and said, We have no portion in David, and we have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tents, O Israel. No sooner has Absalom's rebellion been put down, now Sheba has his rebellion. David can't catch a break. And this too is in really fulfillment of of God's punishment of David in regarding the Bathsheba Uriah incident, that the sword will never depart from David's house. And that's true. It's true here as well. Verse 2 So all the men of Israel withdrew from David and followed Sheba, the son of Bikri. You can also see here how fickle the people are. Uh, one minute there for David, the next minute. And again, this may be this may be more representative of leaders as opposed to. I, I mean, I think it would be misleading to think of hundreds of thousands of people all gathering there saying, "David, David." And now suddenly, Sheba's like, "No, we got nothing to do with David." And they're like, "Sheba, Sheba." I think that, that no, I don't think it's quite like that. Um, but it's more, it's more key leaders of the people. You know, hey, we're for David. Sheba stands up. Ooh, hey, wait a minute. Maybe Sheba's got the power. You know, after all, David showed himself to be ra- rather weak when it came to Absalom and then uh, rather thankless that we defeated Absalom and the forces for him. So, hey, why not? Let's give Sheba a shot. Uh, anyway, still fickle, fickle. All right, so there's the first half of verse two. All the men of Israel withdrew from David and followed Sheba, the son of Bikri. But the men of Judah, again, north and south divided, which we've already seen before multiple times and, of course, shows what's to come with the division of the kingdom. But the men of Judah in the south followed their king steadfastly from the Jordan to Jerusalem. This is very much the return of the king. Uh, but he is, he is now facing this new rebellion. <laughs> so he left on account of rebellion. As he's entering, there's yet another rebellion. As, as volatile as American politics are right now, we're actually nothing near this. <laughs> you know, multiple civil wars. All right, verse 3, and David came to his house at Jerusalem. Okay, so the king has returned. And the king took the ten concubines whom he had left to care for the house. Of course, Absalom came and violated them very publicly, thus asserting his dominance and reign and you know, basically taking what is David's. And, and of course, that's a, a scandalous thing in terms of, not only in terms of politics, but in terms of biblical morality. So David returns, finds the ten concubines whom he had left to care for the house, and he put them in a house under guard, and provided for them, but did not go into them, uh, and that in fulfillment of God's law, in fulfillment of biblical morality. So they were shut up until the day of their death, living as if in widowhood. Uh, I mean, a a tragedy for them. I think that's the other thing that kind of has struck me as we've gone through these texts is just how many people aren't part of the main narrative and just sort of find their lives ruined <laughs> by, by the main narrative, by the sins of the, of the main people involved. And it is interesting, too. I mean, God loves them as individuals, no different than he loves us, and yet they've got this, they've got this rather lousy temporal life at least biblically expressed. I mean, obviously there's far more to it than just a few lines of scripture. Yeah, but it is interesting, it is interesting. I mean, for some of us, this is the part of letting God be God. The vast majority of us play very small roles and sometimes those roles suck. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I don't mean to put it so bluntly, but that's kind of true. It doesn't mean that God loves us any less. He loves, he loves these concubines as much as he loves any one of us and, and sends his son to bear their sins, that they might have eternal life just like any one of us. And It's just a reminder that God is, is a lot bigger than us and his plans are a lot bigger than us and his purposes are a lot bigger. And even when temporal life does not go the way we want it to go, uh, he still loves us. He still cares for us. He still has uh, much better in store for us.
1: Yeah, it's kind of like the that thing that's addressed in the, Jesus' addressed in the New Testament, where that tower fell on those people, and, mm. and he remarks to them, "You think you're worse than no. Yeah. Everybody dies. It doesn't matter what happened.
0: It's, right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's a good point. The the Tower of Siloam, and Jesus says, "Repent." That's the yeah. point of all these tragedies. And yeah. I think, too, there's something about this. I've been, I've been pondering on this a little, just how... I haven't quite put my finger on it, to be honest with you, but just how in America we're all special. <laughs> I don't know quite what it is. But we've got this idea that we're all individually special and destined for good things, or great things, or this kind of life, or that kind of life. Like, where did we get this idea? Where was this written all into us? And the, and this is this is actually pretty strong medicine to the contrary. Um, you know, in terms of in terms of the the temporal story, in terms of the story of one's life on earth, it might just be bad. It might just be it might just be kind of miserable, like not special, and um, and. I, I think the great comfort in that, if you want, if you will, is that that's okay, and God still loves us anyway and cares for us anyway and leads us through this life and, you know. Um, yes?
1: When we think about how, what the disciples went through the account of Jesus mm-hmm. and their suffering and their persecution, so that gives mm-hmm. us some kind of comfort too. Yes, absolutely. The tribulations of this fallen earth, and we remember what Jesus Himself His life, mm-hmm. but the disciples would follow. Day
0: and it was not fun. Yes, right. You that's know, even
1: that's true. When I read that John the Baptist was reading honey and locusts. That was his diet. Yeah, I
0: mean,
1: yeah. Life <laughs> right. So we remember that and give us that hope. Right. His life is not what it is.
0: Yeah, that's right. That's right. And In many cases, we're called to, to suffering and suffering faithfully. Well, I don't, mean to, I don't mean to wander too far from the text, but there, there just are these moments, and I, I think we're meant to. Why, why even bring them up other than to demonstrate David's righteousness, in which case it would be enough to simply end with um, he, he put them in a house under guard and provided for them the end but but it goes on one more doesn't it just Yeah, it, it elicits the thought it elicits the emotion So they were shut up until the day of their death living as if in widowhood which in that You know in that time to not to not be able to bear children to not really have free association I mean, that's it's almost to be leprous like they put <laughs> Yeah, right. Yeah, and yeah quarantine for the rest of your life <laughs> Yeah Yeah, anyway It's just worth pondering on. It's just worth pondering on. I think that that I think in many respects that's a disease that is has like really, really deeply affected us as Americans, one to which we're even relatively unconscious of, and that's just we think that there has to be like ostensible meaning or purpose or specialness and the biblical narrative. I was thinking about this too, just with the countless children aborted in our country and in our and in our world, and just like what does that mean? What does that mean that this happens? And of course you can say, as we often do, that this is a great evil and contrary to God's will and purpose. All of that, of course, is right. It's right to have that as our dominant thought. But just the fact that it is, and just the the fact that so many millions upon millions of human beings, their story in this life, their part in this life was not even outside the womb. It's just a bizarre. It's a bizarre thing. It's something to marvel at and ponder. I think. Again, I, I'm I'm asserting here tentatively that it's a medicine to our a kind of sort of egotism that I think we all almost unconsciously suffer from. And from that is born these kinds of like entitlement and expectations. And from that is born our sorrows when things aren't going right. You know what I mean? And and comparatively, I think we've got very little to actually complain about well I digress to be sure let's pick back up Uh, chapter 20 verse 4 then the king said to Amasa now Amasa uh, shows up back in chapter 19 verse 13 and he is I have to go back and get my study note here there's too many names Chapter 19, verse 13. Amasa is David's nephew and the cousin of Joab and Abishai. Of course, we've seen both Joab and Abishai, but particularly Joab, be ruthless. Joab, after all, is the one who kills David's son, Absalom. Joab's been ruthless. Uh, That's a good descriptor for him. And uh, he is related to Amasa, as is David. Okay. Okay. So the king says to Amasa, call the men of Judah together to me within three days and be here yourself. Now, David wants this done in haste because the point is he wants to overtake Sheba before Sheba can find his way into a stronghold or some fortified location from which he can lead this rebellion. David wants to turn and strike him quick. Verse 5, so Amasa went to summon Judah, but he delayed beyond the set time that had been appointed him. He uh, had a golf golf outing or a vacation planned or something, but he delayed. And this is fateful. This is fateful. Verse 6, and David said to Abishai, now Sheba the son of Bikri will do us more harm than Absalom we've missed our window to overtake him now he's going to be set up in a fortified city it's going to be worse than the first rebellion in other words David is upset to be sure take your Lord's servants and pursue him lest he get himself to fortified cities and escape from us Of course, the implication here is David's very concerned that he already has. I mean, he's already escaped. He's well beyond three days away, etc. Verse 7, And there went out after him Joab's men, and the Cherethites and the Pelethites. Again, these are non-Israel allies that are under the command of Israel, etc. They keep showing up. And all the mighty men. They went out from Jerusalem to pursue Sheba the son of Bichri. When they were at the great stone that is in Gibeon, okay, well, we don't know exactly what this great stone is. And the study note says perhaps it's the great stone that Saul had the people bring to Gibeon for their treachery, 1 Samuel 14, or perhaps it was also the high place at Gibeon, 1 Kings 3, who knows? Who knows? We don't know exactly. And it doesn't matter all that much. So they were at the great stone that is in Gibeon, and Amasa came to meet them. Now Joab was wearing a soldier's garment, and over it was a belt with a sword in its sheath, fastened on his thigh. And as he went forward, it fell out. I think it intentionally fell out. I, I, I think that fell out is probably a, it's probably a literalistic translate, translation, but not, a, not an actual meaningful translation. You'll see, you'll see why. Verse 9, and Joab said to Amasa, remember these are are relations, these are related. Is it well with you, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him, but Amasa, Amasa did not observe the sword that was in Joab's hand. So Joab struck him with it in the stomach and spilled his entrails to the ground without striking a second blow, and he died. All right. Well, there's there's weird there's weird uh, foreshadowing of the betrayal by a kiss and the spilling out of Judas's. There's weird foreshadowing, but but in a way that doesn't make real clear linear sense. It's just kind of a muddle. Um, in ter- but it is it is uh, foreshadowing those kinds of things. Um, did David ever command Joab to kill Amasa for delaying? No. Joab did this on his own and so Joab again shows his ruthless character I think the study note on verse 10 yes under Solomon not David but under Solomon Joab was later put to death for his crimes of which we've already seen quite a few crimes committed by Joab just taking, taking what he thought was justice in this case very severe I mean injustice into his own hands Not to mention their family, not to mention Amasa's family with David. I mean, this isn't Joab's call, but still he makes it. We are given gruesome detail. We are given gruesome detail. It's not a pleasant way. We kind of wish that it ended there with, and he died, but sadly it doesn't. Uh, Continuing there with, uh, looks like verse 10. Then Joab and Abishai, his brother, pursued Sheba, the son of Bickri. And one of Joab's young men took his stand by Amasa and said, Whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David, let him follow Joab. Okay, well, Amasa shows up with his men. What are his men supposed to do? They just saw him killed by Joab. So Joab's guy comes and says, hey, let's go follow Joab now. All right. um, Verse 12, And Amasa lay wallowing in his blood in the highway. And anyone who came by seeing him stopped. Well, this isn't the time where you can just, you know, pull out your iPhone and call 911 and get him sewed up. I mean, this is an agonizing death, and it's a death sentence. There's no way to save him. Um, And he's just there, like, bleeding to death with his guts hanging out. It's really disgusting. Wallowing in his blood, as the text says. And when the man saw that all the people stopped he carried Amasa out of the highway into the field and threw a garment over him. So again, like, hey, you're just a distraction here. So kind of picks what's left of Amasa up and throws him in the nearby field and covers him in a, in a garment. So he's not a distraction. Verse 13, when he was taken out of the highway, all the people went on after Joab to pursue Sheba, the son of Bikri. Well, so ends the tale of Amasa. And so increases the guilt of, of Joab. Hmm. Verse 14, And Sheba passed through all the tribes of Israel to Abel of beth Makkah, I think the study note makes a point that Maccah, Beth Makah, literally house of Maccah, echoing the name of Absalom's mother. Absalom fled to his mother's house after killing Amnon. Now Sheba was following in his steps. So there seems to be hints and allusions of comparing, comparing uh, Sheba both to Saul and to Absalom. And all the Bichrites assembled and followed him. And all the men who were with Joab came and besieged him in Abel of Beth Mekah. So they catch up to him. He's uh, in Beth Mekah, which is a fortified city. So unfortunately, he's, he's escaped. They cast up a mound against the city, and it stood against the rampart and they were battering the wall to throw it down. So this is just what you did, you know. Um, there's a fortified city. You build a ramp. You try to knock down the wall and, and get in. The other uh, the other alternative you have is to surround the city and wait for it to starve to death. Um, sometimes you sometimes you couldn't do that because. You would, your army would starve to death before the city would start to death. So you have to have supply lines. If a city has an underground water source or something like that, they can last very long, of course, and so um, that's a problem too. So in some cases, you don't simply wait them out. Uh, you actually build a ramp and go for it, and that's what they're doing. Verse 16, Then a wise woman called from the city, Listen, listen, tell Joab, come here that I may speak to you. And he came near her, and the woman said, "Are you Joab?" He answered, "I am." Then she said to him, "Listen to the words of your servant." And he answered, "I am listening." This whole encounter is reminiscent of Abigail and reminiscent of some of the wise women we've seen throughout First and Second Samuel. It's kind of a—it's a minor theme that you have these these um, wise women mediating. And doing so faithfully and on the right side. Okay, so are you Joab? I am. Then she said to him, listen to the words of your servant. And he answered, I am listening. Verse 18. Then she said, they used to say in former times, let them but ask counsel at Abel. And so they settled a matter. I am one of those who are peaceable and faithful in Israel. You seek to destroy a city that is a mother in Israel. So she's picturing the city as a mother. Uh, Why will you swallow up the heritage of the Lord? Joab answered, far be it from me, far be it that I should swallow up or destroy, which is kind of ironic. Maybe he doesn't even mean it. Who knows? Best case scenario, he means I'm, I don't want to devour the city needlessly So, f- uh, far be it that I should swallow up or destroy Of course, why I say it's ironic is that didn't stop him from killing Amasa un- unnecessarily He continues, that is not true, namely that I have come to swallow up and destroy this city, the mother, a, a mother in Israel But a man of the hill country of Ephraim called Sheba, the son of Bichri, has lifted up his hand against King David. Give up him alone, and I will withdraw from the city. That's quite reasonable. And the woman said to Joab, behold, his head shall be thrown to you over the wall. So here we see another woman who also knows how to take care of business. (laughs) And if you haven't noticed, the Old Testament is filled with style. I mean, it's not just, yeah, well, okay, well, we'll tie him up and give him to you, or, you know, okay, we'll hang him and give him to you. It's like, yeah, no, we're going to, you'll see his head flying over the wall here in a minute. Hang on. (laughs) Stay tuned. Ugh. Yeah. I'm waiting for James to turn like 13 or 14, and then this is going to be right up his alley. When you're a little boy, this is all cool. When you're an a doll, you're just kind of disturbed by it. Oh, well, all right. Verse 22. Then the, then the woman went to all the people in her wisdom, and they cut off the head of Sheba, the son of Bakri and threw it out to Joab. So he blew the trumpet, and they dispersed from the city, every man to his home, and Joab returned to Jerusalem to the king. So ended the rebellion of Sheba, son of Bickery, he, <laughs> he went to the wrong city, didn't he? All right, verse 23. Now Joab was in command of all the army of Israel. And Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was in command of the Cherethites and Pelethites. Here we just sort of have a re-summary statement. We've seen this before in 2 Samuel where it's like, okay, and at the end of this chapter... Uh, in the in the history of Israel, these are the folks that were in charge. That's kind of what we're doing here. There's a little foreshadowing because, as we as we saw in the footnote, Solomon's going to put Joab to death for his crimes. This Beniah is going to replace him. is going to take his place, and Beniah is quite the guy. I think I've pointed out before. So Beniah, the son of Jehoiada, was in command of the Cherethites and the Pelethites, and Adoram was in charge of the forced labor, and Jehoshaphat, the son of uh, ah- Ahilud was the recorder and Shiva was secretary it's like a church council okay. and Zadok and Abiathar were priests and Ira the j J-wright was also David's priest okay well that actually wasn't the difficult part I was talking about <laughs> at the beginning of the class I mean it's a violent part um, but here is here is a much more difficult part Chapter 21, now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David sought the face of the Lord. The study note points out this language is consistent with uh, the using the Urim and Thummim and yes, no kinds of questions. And the Lord said, there is blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. Again, I, like this didn't really resonate with me. I didn't really remember an instance of this, and the study note says, uh, "Nothing more is known of Saul's crime. You can see First Kings 2: 231. Joshua had sworn to let the Gibeonites live. Perhaps the drought was due to Saul's rejection of this covenant. At some point in time, Saul does violently to the Gibeonites, um, putting them to death. And the Lord, the Lord, I think this is fundamental for us to grasp hold of at this point. The Lord is the one who says there is blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to the death. And that's why the Lord is withholding, you know, rain. So there's a famine. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the peoples of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. Although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, Saul had sought to strike them down in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. And David said to the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you, and how shall I make atonement? There's, there's maybe the, another key theological theme. How shall I make atonement that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? The Gibeonites said to him, It is not a matter of silver or gold between us and Saul or his house. Neither is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. And he said, What do you say that I shall do for you? They said to the king, The man who consumed us and planned to destroy us, so that we should have no place in all the territory of Israel, let seven of his sons be given to us, so that we may hang them before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. And the king said, I will give them. All right, so very hard for us to wrap our minds around, but effectively, effectively, as best as I can read it, the Gibeonites are saying, we don't have a beef with all of Israel. We have a beef with this one man who tried to genocide us. And who in fact largely did. Um, we've got a beef with him. Uh, we want seven of his sons. He slayed who knows how many of ours. We want seven of his. The number seven seems to be uh, symbolic. The language of atonement is used. The language of worshipping the Lord. So they view this as, uh, as righting the wrong. And David agrees with it. And again... Um, I mean, the Lord has said at the beginning, that's kind of one of the foundations, that the reason why there's a famine is there's blood guilt, not on Israel, but on Saul and his house because of what he had done. So David agrees, and I mean, the implication is that this is all, this is all kosher with the, with the Lord. Now, um, there is some suggestion that maybe these seven sons had something to do with it themselves or were implicated you know, but I don't know. I don't know. Maybe that, maybe that makes things better in our minds. I don't know. Maybe it doesn't.
1: <laughs> well, also, why did he go after them when they, he knew of the covenant that they had made when they came from the promise, to the promised land? He was to take care of the Philistines. That's what he was supposed to do instead he goes after these
0: people Saul you're talking about yeah. yeah Saul never should have went after these people he went after these people the lord's upset about it um, the people are you know i think in the I think in the gibeonites you don't even have a sense for an eye for an eye in the first place they distinguish and say it's not it's not all israel it's just this guy and then it's not like so let's uh let us destroy him like he destroyed us that is let us wipe him off, you know let us try to genocide him there's not an eye for an eye there seems to be this sense of like I mean, undoubtedly, they're aware of the spiritual connections here. That's why David's here trying to make atonement, the language says. So, I mean, the Gibeonites seemed, in, in that sense, if you couch it that way, it's kind of this merciful thing of like, okay, well, seven. Seven will die then and their blood will make atonement and the thing will be passed. And um, we, we as, as the Gibeonites, will be reconciled fully to Israel and Israel to us. So the peace between the two is the blood of these seven. And it's a blood of atonement. Now this all points in kind of a weird way to Jesus. But again, it's weird. It's weird. Um, it's where, where uh, one human being or one party has done great evil to other human beings instead of requiring their own blood our Lord Jesus comes between and He is the sevenfold sacrifice and He is the Son that sheds His blood in order to make peace between peoples. When there's peace between peoples, there's peace between them and God. So I think ultimately that's the intent and purpose for the Holy Spirit recording these words is that even in this very strange, bizarre scene, we see glimmer of Christ. Uh, Glimmer of Christ. But that's, I mean... Yeah, that's about the best I can do for you. It's just a tough text. It's just a tough text. All right. Well, on to verse seven. But the king, that is David, spared Mephibosheth. Now, Mephibosheth, of course, is the son of Jonathan, and uh, he's the one crippled. And we've seen him kind of go back and forth with David. I mean, there's been Mephibosheth's shown up a few times ultimately he splits the land with his David splits the land between him and his servant and they're supposed to live happily ever after and then this comes about well David spares him once more so the king spared mephibosheth the son of Saul's son Jonathan because of the oath of the Lord that was between them between David and Jonathan the son of Saul The king took the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Eah, whom she bore to Saul, Armoni and Mephibosheth. This is a different Mephibosheth. This is Mephibosheth, son of Saul, not son of Jonathan. And the five sons of Merab, the daughter of Saul, whom she bore to Adriel, the son of Barzillai, the Mahalathite. Mahalathite. and he gave them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them on the mountain before the Lord. I mean, notice again the language before the Lord. And also notice the language of, um, yeah. look at the language back in verse 6. Let seven of his sons be given to us so that we may hang them before the Lord. So this is viewed, again, this is viewed as, I don't know, it's really strange. I, I'm almost inclined to think that it's not so much that the Gibeonites even want this, as the problem to be solved is God is upset about this. And they want to appease God and so they, uh, this is what they come up with and of course it's acceptable to God. We'll see that in a minute. Um, but that's, it's almost as if the Gibeonites themselves don't seek a remedy. Strictly speaking. D-
1: doesn't that go back to the garden where Abel... A- a- killed his brother and he says where's your brother and he says I don't know what the earth is calling out his name and then you hear that and then you go into further on in the old testament where God is mad because they've done the same thing the Jews when Babylon's coming the land is calling for the people you killed
0: hey I, I mean I guess you could make that parallel as Cain killed Abel so uh, Saul killed the Gibeonites and as God exacted a punishment on Cain so there's to be a punishment exacted upon the household of Saul yeah I, I mean that's not a bad parallel it's who knows but the, I, I all I'm trying to do is I'm trying to highlight I'm trying to wrestle with this myself with you and then highlight uh, the, this recurrent theme that it's done before the Lord and that seems to be Again, the, the, chief, the chief one who's pointing out the injustice doesn't seem to be the Gibeonites as such as much as it's the Lord. And so this plan to hang the seven um, is done before the Lord. Yeah, so again, verse nine, and he gave them into the hands of the Gibeonites and they hanged them on the mountain before the Lord. Of course, Jesus is hung on the mountain. And the seven of them perished together. They were put to death in the first days of the harvest at the beginning of barley harvest. All right, verse 10. Then Rizpah, the daughter of Ea, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of the harvest until rain fell. There is your, there is your cue in the text that this was in fact pleasing to God and the famine is over because the rain falls. So you tie verse 1 into verse 10 here. But again, this is like, this is like the extra details given about what happens to the concubines. I, I, for, in a strict sense, it's superfluous. So the fact that it's here, the author obviously intends, ultimately the Holy Spirit himself intends that we think these things through, that we ponder these things. So Rizpah, the daughter, she's mentioned in verse 8, isn't she? The king took the two sons of Rizpah. So here's a mother mourning for her sons. Rizpah, the daughter of Ea, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of the harvest until rain fell upon them from the heavens. And she did not allow the birds of the air to come upon them by day or the beasts of the field by night. I mean, that's just, a, that's just a heart-wrenching scene, isn't it? I mean, let's, even worst case scenario, they're guilty of sin. That's a heart-wrenching scene. <coughs> and I, and I, there's no real direct evidence that these seven were. The study note on chapter 21, verse 6 says, of the seven sons, perhaps to signify the number of people Saul killed. That doesn't seem likely. Or because these seven participated in the slaughter of the Gibeonites. Maybe. Or to symbolize complete satisfaction, the number seven symbolized completeness. That seems to be more the case, more likely the case. It's also the harder reading. If it were as easy as that other thing, there would just be a little line or phrase that this is why. Yes, sir? Maybe it symbolizes sin. Mm Yeah. Uh, maybe it's the symbol uh, type of Christ mm-hmm. maybe, uh, I think that's right yeah, type of and I think that's right these people maybe didn't do anything directly but somebody had to be responsible to atone them mm-hmm. so just the way that the animals I mean, they didn't commit sin right? Right. they were chosen to be the people so yeah. And then, because of that sacrifice, God was pleased with people. With mm-hmm. with rain, so. I think that's a great point. I think that that is probably the best reading. It's the hardest reading, but I think that that's probably the best reading. Is to think of these as innocents dying on account of sins of another, namely Saul. We have other examples of this. You brought up the animals in the sacrificial system, innocence dying in the place of the guilty. And we've seen this even in Samuel. I mean, one instance comes to mind right away with uh, David's son with Bathsheba, the innocent dying because of the sin of the the guilty. And and maybe that is a a common theme. I'd have to think about it. These sort of little... Little details that the uh, that the author gives us along the way of how people suffered on account. I mean, you think of the concubines we just covered; they're suffering largely for the on account of the sins of Absalom. You know, arguably, the sins of David in some respect. So yeah, there's the innocence, the innocent suffering for the sins of others. You see Christ shining through. It's kind of like when I think of texts like this, I don't know why my mind thinks of like just broken bottles and broken glass scattered all out over an alley and the sun rises and they're shining. You know, it's like it's like it's messed up, it's broken, it's screwed up, but you still see the glory of Christ refracted in the ugliness and chaos. And um, that, that seems to me how these texts, how the history of Israel often is like. Who knows? I'm probably ripping that off from somewhere, but if so, I've forgotten who. But... Uh, that's how I, yeah, that's how I often think about it. Well, okay. Yeah, this tragic scene. So she's out there with the dead bodies trying to protect them from the, uh, the birds and the bees. Verse 11, when David was told what Rizpah, the daughter of Aya, the concubine of Saul, had done, David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan from the men of Jabash Gilead, who had stolen them from the public square of beth Shan, where the Philistines had hanged them on the day the Philistines killed Saul on Gilboa. I mean, what's going on here? It's a strange thing, because David doesn't really go and have compassion directly on this woman in the seven. But on account of what she's doing, David sees something redeemable in that and and thus seeks to honor Saul. I mean, Saul's sins are atoned for in effect and so his bones deserve to be treated with honor and Jonathan's there. It's really strange for us culturally. I suppose this made much more sense to them just on a cultural level than it does for us because there's a lot of shame and honor stuff going on in the background here that if you know anything about Middle Eastern culture is still uh, very much alive and well if, from time to time you have um, these honor killings you 've heard of this right where someone 's been put to shame and thus you know it's, but in this kind of culture there's there 's things that just don 't make sense to us as westerners who don 't have this dynamic but that seems to be going on here because uh, david then David then sees on account of what Rizpah is doing um, sees that it would be appropriate then to honor the, uh, the remains of Saul and, of course, Jonathan's with him. Um, the, uh, the Philistines had taken the bodies and treated them poorly. The men from Jabash Gilead had stolen the bodies from the Philistines and the bodies remained there. David now gathers up the bodies. This is verse 13. And he brought up from there the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan and they gathered the bones of those who were hanged Okay so here's the here's the honoring of those 7 and they buried the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan in the land of Benjamin in Zela in the tomb of Kish his father and they did all that the king commanded and after that God responded to the plea for the land so there's there's your overt statement there that then the this famine that is a punishment from the hand of God is now fully going to be uh taken away. The study note on verse 11 through 13 just kind of echoes what I was saying, just so you don't think that this is strictly the wit and lack of wisdom of Rhody. But uh, David accorded the remains an honorable burial and showed that the execution of Saul's sons was not due to personal animosity. And God responded to the plea that God accepted the death of the seven men from Saul's house and ended the famine. This This is a good summary, I think, in part. I often don't like these summaries, but I think that this one is at least okay. Saul's sons, whether innocent or guilty with their father, now pay the penalty for Saul's crime. God will not allow sin to go unpunished, though his justice sometimes does not make sense to us. That's probably because we're evil. The apparent innocence of the seven from Saul's house who were hanged on a mount before the Lord as an act of atonement for Saul's sin brings into sharp focus the all aton. I don't know about sharp focus, but draws our attention to the all-atoning sacrifice of Christ, the Son of God, who was crucified on Mount Calvary for all the sins of the world. Not just any man's death would propitiate God, only the death of God's Son could bring salvation. I think that's well said as far as those summaries go. All right, well, hardly an easy section of Scripture. Um, I have... uh, I've got to run over because we're having a, a contractor come over and give us a bid on something going on. One of these things where you, you try to fix one thing at your house and it ends up being another thing and another thing. and another. Well, that happens at the church too. <laughs> so I was planning on, on about 10 minutes early. We're about 12 minutes early. So maybe this is a good time to just simply break for the day. And next week we will, uh, w- we will do our best and, and likely stand a, a shot at coming to a conclusion of 2nd Samuel. If not that's fine. The plan is to just simply go into 1st Kings and 2nd Kings and of course we'll see Solomon, that's great, and then we'll see the divided kingdom, that's not great. So until next week, the Lord be with you.